This is where normal comes to die. Mediocrity meets its final demise, and the status quo is unabashedly dismantled. Welcome to Reinvention Radio. Now, here's your host, Steve Olsher. Alrighty, welcome to another edition here of Reinvention Radio. Steve Olsher hanging out with... Richie, okay? What's up, brother? What's going on? Steve? I always say the lovely Mary Goulet, and then I looked over and wait, Mary Goulet's not, not here, so I have to say the, the lovely Richie Ote hanging out with us. Man. Thank you. I shaved just for you. Yeah, thank you for that. And uh, Mary is, I think she's got uh, her volunteer stuff she does out in the world today, and uh, Wade's got it under control in the booth, and uh, Kelly's got it under control over at headquarters. And here on Reinvention Radio, we sit down with amazing people who are dismantling the status quo in all walks of life and business and philanthropy and, God, you name it, we've had them here on the show. And uh, and today's guest is uh, absolutely no exception to that rule and really, really excited because it's taken us a long time here. Uh, to get this coordinated and get uh, get our guest on, and I'm so excited to have her on, and we'll we'll jump in for uh, for a nice in depth conversation here in, in just a second. But I just want to bring folks up to date, and, and Esther, you'll appreciate this, and then we'll formally introduce you here uh, in a second. Uh, but talk about dismantling the status quo, which is what we like to do here on Reinvention Radio. And Richie, you don't even know this, and this is news then to to everyone. Breaking news. Breaking news. Breaking news. Breaking news. I am now the ticker bar going across the bottom of the screen, officially here live and in person. Uh, So my wife has been a licensed funeral director and embalmer for the better part of a decade. And she uh, loves, absolutely loves what she does. And, And we've been trying for quite some time to, well, let's get her set up with her own home here in San Diego and talk about uh, an industry that is ripe for disruption. Uh, There's so many opportunities there to better serve the needs of uh, the families who are going through one of the most difficult periods of time and having to say goodbye to their loved one. Uh, And it's such a a stoic industry that has been operating in in much the same manner. uh, And even many of the places look exactly the same as when they opened 50 years ago, uh, which in a lot of ways is a disservice, of course, to to so many. But there's such a huge opportunity to serve in a much more powerful way. And we've been looking uh, here in San Diego for quite some time to find a place where she can open up her own funeral home. Uh, and two days ago, we put a, a building under contract. Wow, so, congratulations. It's, uh, so it's in the Grantville neighborhood, just off of Friars. And uh, we'll talk about that because I'd love to get your take on that, Richie, because you're born and raised here in San Diego and know so much about it. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's the plan here is we'll get that closed and uh, it'll take some time to, to fix it up and get it to where we want it to be. Uh, but we will, uh, we will get the wife going with, uh, with her own funeral home and she'll be able to serve the people of San Diego in her own unique, special, and beautiful way. And uh, so super excited around that. And, uh, and, and you talk about just uh, having a, a vision and being able to you know, bring that vision to fruition you know, for a lot of people, it's one of the hardest things in in life to do, which is to to know that you want something, but not know how to make that happen. And you have a vision for how you can change things or how you could do something different. But then 
you get stuck in, in the weeds and it never happens. And, and I can't think of anything more frustrating than reaching your final days and having regrets about what you didn't do and knew in your heart of hearts that you should have been doing it. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's really, really timely here for us to have our guest uh, on today, Esther. And, and Esther, I want actually you to pronounce your last name just so I don't butcher it throughout today's episode of Reinvention Radio. So how, how do you pronounce your last name? Wojcicki. Wojcicki. Okay. Got it. Thank you for the pronunciation on that. And it's interesting. So my mom married a gentleman whose, uh, whose name was Zelitsky. So that'll be easy for me to pronounce here uh, moving forward. So Esther Wojcicki is hanging out with us. And are, are you in Palo Alto or where, where are you at in the world? I'm in San Francisco. San Francisco. Okay. Yeah. So generally in the Northern California area there. Uh, and we, we, we brought Esther on for a number of reasons, not the least of which uh, is to discuss her, her really inspirational and just uh, awesome book, uh, which is called How to Raise Successful People, Simple Lessons for Radical Results. And if you're wondering why Esther is qualified to write a book titled How to Raise Successful People, uh, you have to look no further than her three amazing daughters, Janet, who is, uh, is she officially a doctor of anthropology? Yes. Yep. A doctor of anthropology. And then eh, there's Susan. Susan does okay. She's the uh, the CEO of, um, what's that thing called? Oh, that's right, YouTube. <laughs> so Susan is the CEO of YouTube. And if that's not enough, her third amazing daughter, whose name is Anne, uh, happens to be the founder and CEO of 23andMe. So um, I'd say you're pretty darn qualified to help us raise successful people. And it's interesting. I actually have my 15-year-old hanging out over on the other side of the studio here. Hopefully he has his uh, earbuds out of his ear so he will be hearing uh, this interview here today. But let's just jump into things straight away here, Esther. There has... If there is a, a record for going, you know, I mean, just like a, a batting average or whatever you want to call it in terms of raising successful people, my God, you'd be hard pressed to find a parent that that has accomplished more than you have uh, with your children. But we'll, we'll talk about them in a second. But I want to understand more about you and your family and, and your familial unit and so on and so forth it'll help shed light here on on perhaps why you've been as successful as you have been in terms of raising successful people. So first and foremost, were your, were your parents together from, you know, until death do they part? Were they one of those couples? Well, yes, they were married until death do they they part. Yeah. Yeah. How long, how long were they married? Let me just think probably 50 years. Yeah. 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 And so what, what were some of the lessons that you learned from them and how big was your family in terms of the number of brothers and sisters that you have? Well, to answer them in the order you asked them, I think the main thing that I learned from my family is that life is not always easy and that doesn't matter. You still have to tough it out and you still have to, you know, 
look at your goal, no matter what it is that is trying to block you from that goal. Mm-hmm. And, um, my parents were immigrants, Russian Jewish immigrants. My mother was from Siberia and my father was from the Ukraine. Mm. And, um, so they arrived in New York City where they thought life was going to be much better. And they arrived right in the middle of the depression. <laughs> so life was not much better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so they, as I said, they sort of had to tough it out. I heard lots of stories while I was growing up about how difficult life was. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, you, you just didn't give up and you did your best to um, make your life as as good as it could possibly be, no matter what you had. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had, and I still, I have one brother now. I had two brothers. Um, my youngest brother had a rather unfortunate situation. And I actually explained it in, in my book in more detail. And that is that um, as a 18 month old child, he was playing with a bottle of aspirin on the floor of the kitchen. Mm. And that was prior to the days that Bayer put child safety caps on the bottles and he opened it up and helped himself. And it's kind of crazy. The little kids don't notice how terrible things taste. Mm -hmm. Well, he ate them all. And and, uh, the tragedy is that my mom, she called the doctor and asked what to do. And, um, I don't think he was listening because otherwise I can't believe he would have said this, but he said, why don't you put him to bed and see how he is in a few hours. And um, being an immigrant, she of course idolized everybody in this country and like, Oh, you know, they all know what they're doing. And we back in Russia, we really just don't know anything. And so she followed his advice and unfortunately, you know, he died Mm. and it was really a tragedy. And what that taught me as a child, although I didn't, it wasn't on the conscious level, but it, what it taught me is that no matter what someone's title was, you always had to, you know, check and make sure it was right. You had to be suspicious no matter what, and you had to validate the information that you were getting no matter what, and no matter how important their, their title seemed. Yeah. That sort of stayed with me for life, and it's still there, by the way. And um, I find it, you know, a skill that I think is really important, not only for me, but it's been important for my students as well, Mm -hmm. Um, the students of journalism, because you always want to, you always want to make sure that you understand and trust your sources. And um, you don't interview just random people. You want to make sure that the people you interview are people that have something valid to say about whatever it is you're you know writing a story about so um and this is also what i taught my daughters you know that it's important to be able to back up and to document whatever it is you're saying or thinking or doing mm-hmm. and not follow the crowd and um it's okay to think independently not only is it okay it's prefer preferred it's better um, because that way you can do interesting, innovative things and you don't have to worry about what the crowd says. Mm-hmm. So I think that that was, my, that was my childhood. We were pretty impoverished and it was because my father 
uh, was an artist. And, you know, artists don't make a lot of money and unless you're Picasso. And even Picasso, I don't think he made so much money when he was alive either. You know, <laughs> somehow rather it seems to take a while for artists to make a lot of money. And so um, we, we had to make do and that it gave me, it made me realize what, afterward that it really gave me a lot of creativity because I had to come up with ways to do things that I wanted to do that were not traditional. I just couldn't go to the store and buy something that I wanted. I had to actually make it. So that was, that was different. Please, Richie. Yeah, I was going to ask you, so Steve alluded to the, you've already raised, I mean, you got the bat in a thousand. How many kids do you have, by the way? Is it just those three? Three, yeah. So literally bat in a thousand on very successful children. Um, How, as a parent now, I have a daughter who's about to turn seven, and I know she's all about, like, loving, learning, and being happy, but I also know from my experience of going through school, like, the loving, learning part they like, but necessarily the the happy kid kind of tends to you know the, the one that thinks out of the box and is creative like you're alluding to they, they tend to kind of get pushed down or try to get pushed into a box obviously your daughters you taught them something that allowed them to get through that school system and still allow them to think out of the box like what is that if there was something like how would you reinvent how a parent should talk to their children while they're going through this as the education system is changing. So I think one of the things you want to do that's really important for your kid is you want to trust and respect them, believe in them. And um, the reason you want to do that is because when you believe in your child, they believe in themselves. They then say, Oh yeah, I can do it. And, um, you know, they don't question their ability because like, yeah, mom, they don't even say it on a conscious level. They're like, but mom and dad, they trust me. And so, you know, and I can do it. I can ride that bike or I can, you know, complete that race or I can do whatever it is. And I think um, that's really important to teach your child from day one. And especially in the school system, because in the school system, the number one thing is you get things wrong. And then when you get things wrong, you're penalized. And then the whole system is set up for penalizing all these kids for making mistakes. In fact, I think school should be a place where you learn through making mistakes and you aren't penalized for those mistakes, which is part of the reason that I am really in favor of something called the mastery system, where you master it and then you get your grade. You know, some kids take like um, two times to do it and some kids take five times to do it or 10 times. But um, my theory is that they can all do it. It just is at different paces. And we all, we all develop at a very different pace, especially girls versus boys. You know, boys are much more athletic, much less willing to follow instructions. Um, that's why more boys are um, medicated for ADD, ADHD, because they can't sit still. And, um, and the girls somehow, it's biological, innate. They are better able to follow directions and sit still. And um, so I would teach my, my child, you know, that it's okay to follow your dreams. It's okay to be different. You don't have to be like the little boy or little girl next door. You know, whatever you decide you want to be. 
I mean, of course, you can give them guidance and to say, you know, tell, one of the ways I always did is tell stories. Kids love stories. And, you know, actually the whole world loves stories because if you just think about it, movies are stories, right? We all go to the movies and then we sit there and, you know, as a matter of fact, you go to these movies where you, you know, sit in these big chairs and you have to pay. And then you sit there, oh my God, you know, you, <laughs> you're not there at home anymore. You're now, oh my God, in the new world. So, you know, you tell kids stories, they don't have to be long, but you want to make sure that they understand it's okay the way they are. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, it, it's really interesting because when, when you talk about stories and you talk about the, the way that we communicate, it, it, it harkens back to the way that we used to have to communicate. So it's almost as if things, you know, that were old have become new again, so to speak, in terms of the most effective ways of raising children and communicating, because when you when you look at how most parents, uh, myself included, I'm not I'm not taking myself out of this equation. We've got a 15 year old and a 12 year old, you know. And, and I know when I was growing up, I was uh, ostensibly raised by the television, you know. Back, you know, really, I mean, as you know, my mom was a single mom and she was doing whatever she had to do, I was kind of raised by the television. Today, you know, most families sit around and the stories that we hear are just whatever those stories are that are being told on TV or whatever the device is that we're holding in our hands. And, and I think ultimately what, what, I'm, what I'm hearing you say, kind of reading between the lines here a little bit, uh, is if we can get back to those campfires of sitting around the backyard sharing stories and and teaching through our own languaging as opposed to the languaging of others, it's going to be infinitely more powerful and effective. That's right. No, so you're like the idea of sitting around a campfire, sitting around the pool, sitting around whatever, but it's a sense of community because what you want your child to do is feel a sense of belonging, sense of community, and a sense that it's okay in our family to be the way that we want to be, you know, um, whatever it is that a lot of kids exhibit this independence by dressing in sort of crazy ways. And um, sometimes those crazy ways are really not appreciated at all by the family, but just think about it. You know, that's a very simple way to just express your individuality. And if you can just do that one little thing, sometimes you then don't have to do bigger things. Um, so I think it's important to have this sense of community and I think it would be great if people would sit down and have dinner together. And I know so many families don't do that anymore and it's so simple and, um, you know, just actually have the kids help prepare the dinner, actually have them decide what to have for dessert that night and make it or go to the store and buy it or whatever, and then put it together. Um, so they're not only being, they're not being served because a lot of parents, you know, they treat the kids like they need to be, they're in charge of making sure the kid's happy. Um, let the kid participate as part of the family. I think it makes a huge difference. It makes a difference to the parents, but it makes such a big difference to the kid. Mm -hmm. I actually noticed that played out at my daughter's school, you know, this nutrition and how kids are eating at school and they're they're looking at the other kids lunchbox and what they have in and some kids like 
we try to have our daughter eat pretty healthy, but it's not just what she wants. They've got this marketing going on in these other boxes with, you know, Tony the Tiger and all these crazy, you know, just look at me, I'm shiny and sugary. And <laughs> But um, it's it's been interesting when you were talking about taking them through the process and having them cook with you. They started this garden program and seeing the difference in how the kids want to eat when they watch that carrot grow, they watch that tomato grow, they, they like, even though there's heavy-duty marketing, and sure, the sugar's still pulling them in a little bit, like, it's amazing just taking them through that process and that journey of seeing how it unfolded. That one little thing is making so many more kids try good, healthy foods, right? So it was just a small example of what I've seen in happening right in front of me of it seems so small, but these little conversations, these little things of seeing how they worked, uh, how it grew from nothing, that literally means so much more than, here, good luck having a carrot compete against, you know, mm-hmm. a Kit Kat, right? But <laughs> That's true. You know, what a lot of parents think is they have to make big changes. They have to do big things to make it work. Actually, it's a series of little things little tiny things that make a big difference to kids and probably make a big difference also, you know, to your kids and to your family. I mean, it's the difference between asking somebody for their opinion and telling them what to do or what their opinion should be. I mean, that's really, it sounds like it's, you know, not such a big deal, but it's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, Let me ask you a question and then we'll, we'll get into some of the specifics as far as uh, you know, what, because and and for those who are unfamiliar with with Esther and and what you've done, I mean, you're very accomplished in your own right. So it's not like you're sitting there hanging your hat and going, you know, geez, look at my kids. Let me write a book about it. I mean, you, you've had a storied career, and and we'll we'll get into some. I know you got into the tech world pretty early, and you were teaching, and you know, even a magazine, like the whole nine. So let, let's. I, I don't want people to to get confused on this and say, oh, you know, we're just. Astra's just here because she's got these kids. No, I mean, very accomplished in your own right, and we'll get to some of that because I, w- I want you to briefly touch on that, and then we will get into some of the more specifics around your book and, and so on. But let, let me just make sure that folks are clear. So, and, and, and I'll do this just purely from a selfish standpoint, what, what is the first thing that you would tell a parent? And again, I'm sitting here as a parent, Richie is sitting here as a parent, Wade, you know, Kelly back in the headquarters, and so on. I mean, like, we're all parents. What what are the first small steps that we could take if we want to have a fighting chance of raising successful people? First small steps. So the first small step you can take early on when your child is zero to one is to give to trust nature trust the child's instincts to actually do things by themselves. And I think we don't do that. You know, so one of the things I talk about in the book is, you know, those kids actually, they can go to sleep without you rocking them like crazy. They, their natural instinct, their job when they're born is to sleep and eat. They just have two things that they're supposed to do. And I think we, we tend to carry this 
I have, I'm responsible for making sure they're always happy attitude right through. And so, you know, your child never learns to entertain themselves because the parents like, oh my God, they just woke up. It's now time to, um, what do I, where's their toy? What do I do now? Um, kind of thing. You know, those kids, that the pattern of behavior is just a tiny little thing from you having to entertain them to them having to entertain themselves. It's very small. And it makes a big difference because then they believe in themselves. They trust themselves. They can do it themselves. They're not dependent on you. So, and so if we miss this and, and wait, I know you're trying to control the board there and, and just, we'll just leave it and just let it go and whatever happens, happens. Um, so let me just ask you this. So for those of us who completely missed out and screwed up our kids for the first dozen years of their life, because we, we didn't do those things and we waited, you know, until this point to, to pick up your book and try to learn from someone who actually knows what they're doing. No knock against my parents, but uh, you know, I, I'm, I can tell you that I could have used your book 12 years ago. There's no doubt about that. And 15 years ago, and even earlier uh, than that. So let's just say that we've, we've blown through the formative years and, and, and we missed out on that opportunity, but they're still young enough that, you know, they, they can be influenced by the things that their parents show them and do with them and so on. So for those of us who, 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 who blew through the formative years, what are some of those things that we can, that we can be doing? So I think first one thing that I found really interesting, it's happened since the book was published is that, you know, when the kids actually read the book, they want their parents to read the book. Interesting. And mm. that they're like number one advocates because what I'm saying in the teenage years, it's built in again, biologically, independence is there. That's why there's so much fighting between parents and, and their teenage children because the teenagers like, oh, I want to do it this way. And I want, you know, they, it's the independent streak. And so if you can collaborate with your child, I think that's the main thing you can say, by the way, I just read this new book with this philosophy and, you know, it looks like maybe we should be collaborating on making some of the rules and regulations around the house instead of me just telling you all the time what to do. Mm -hmm. Let's see how that works. Why don't we just do it for a couple of things just to try it out, see how it works. And then, you know, if you like it and it works well, well, we can do it for another thing or a few more things. Um, and I think that that, I think little steps make a big difference. I mean, they can be in charge of, there's a lot of things that the kids can be in charge of. Uh, if you just look around the house right now, most kids aren't in charge of anything. You know, you get a dog, they should be taking care of the dog, but you end up taking care of the dog. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're like, oh, my dog is going to starve if my kids have to take care of it. Well, <laughs> let the dog be hungry for a little bit. And those kids need to take care of the dog, mm -hmm. brush the dog, wash the dog, walk the dog, whatever. Yeah. Um, so, so there's little things that you can do. And I try this trick philosophy, talk to them about it. And that will make a big difference. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're, we refer to it now a couple of times, but trick stands for trust, respect, independence, collaboration, and kindness. And we'll be revisiting that here throughout the interview. But let's, let's talk about this in terms of consequences and punishment. Like I, I know, you know, Richie and I kind of raised in that generation of you don't do something, you know, you're, you're, you're going to hear it or you're going to feel it, you know, one of the two. 
Yeah, I'm not sure if that was the case for you growing up, but it was the case for me, if you didn't do it, you felt it. Right. And so, <laughs> so what, how do we walk that fine line between, and, and Richie, you know, just, we, we've talked about this ad nauseum here, but with kids, it's tricky because, you know, you want to be friendly with them and you want to be their friend. But at the same token, you want to have that, you know, that that line, right? And so punishment, consequences, friendship versus parenting. Take us through what that looks like in, in 2019 here. Right. So you're always a parent. Always. You're never a friend. Sorry. You're a friend and a parent. But you have to remember that you're always a parent and that you really, no matter what, you have somewhat of a different role in their lives. I mean, people are always trying to please their parents, even though they don't do it, um, perhaps it doesn't look like it on a daily basis. Mm. But so you do have to set standards. You do have to have consequences. You're the one that's in charge of the consequences. You know, if you do things that, you know, create problems for everyone, there have to be consequences. But the idea is to set up the rules in advance collaboratively. And then when they break them, they know the consequences because they were part of the the structure of the rules, whatever the rules are. I mean, if I can just think about for my classroom, when I was teaching ninth grade English and I volunteered to take the lowest class of ninth grade English in the school, and the question was like, what do you do with these kids? You know, how do you deal with them? Because they, these are the non-performers. You, at the beginning of the class, at the beginning of the year, you set the rules together with them. And then you are not enforcing them all alone. You're collaborating with them. Same thing around the home. You know, there's certain things, there's ways of treating parents, there's ways of eating, dressing, you know, co- collaborating, getting along with your siblings. You, the parent, I'm sorry to say, do have to be the enforcer of the rules. But you can collaboratively come up with the rules. This is so awesome because I wanted to go this and it was almost like it was like scripted or something. But so here you are, you're, you take this class that's the underperforming class in this whole trick thing, right? The trust, respect, uh, independence, independence, collaboration, collaboration kindness. kindness. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make a scenario up. Do you, do you kind of say to them, hey, listen, I chose to take this class because they thought, you know, kind of almost like a us versus them, they thought you couldn't do it. I believe you can do it. We're going to figure out, like, what do you think we should do together to um, – help show that you guys are capable of this. I, I'm literally pulling it up on the spot because you just gave this example. Right. But what what did you do with that group? Because obviously if they're underperforming, there could be a various things. There could be problems at home. They could be they really have a learning disabled. They could be no one really did trust them before. So that's there's like screw it. No one trusts me. Like the marshmallow test. I'm not the the kids when they look back at the kid that didn't take the marshmallow or that took the marshmallow was because they grew up in the poor neighborhoods and like they anyone who told them they'd give them a marshmallow later, they didn't believe it. So they took the marshmallow now. So like, what did you actually do with that group and how did it turn out? Well, first of all, it was not easy. Let's put it that way. 
first of all, I had 18 kids in the class. There were 15 boys and three girls. And um, they all had, they were, it was called an IEP. It's an individual education plan. And some of them were supposed to have special teachers that came along with them. Actually, I never did see those special teachers. I don't know where they were. Mm. But um, in any event, they, they were kind of shocked. It took a while because they were shocked that I actually liked them. That really did them in in the beginning. And they were shocked that I trusted them. It took, oh, I don't know, three months for them to realize that I really did trust them. And then... Um, you know, I, I gave them multiple opportunities to violate that trust. And in many cases they did. And then I would just say, well, you have to do it again. You know, it, it was not easy because I was dealing with nine years of kids not being trusted. But um, what was interesting also is that I used a lot of food. I used to bring in food and I don't think they'd ever had a teacher that gave them mm. food. And, you know, they, it was just fun. You know, I was like, okay, whoever finishes their vocabulary first can have here's a bag of M&Ms, you know, or whatever it was. I, I, I usually just shopped and bought the bargains, you know, and I'd buy like 20 of them. And uh, by the end, it was very interesting. It was a really interesting transformation. A lot of those kids ended up taking my journalism program. And these kids that were in the very lowest reading and writing in the school. And they decided that they could do it. And, um, but it, you know, I think most of the time teachers give up, they, they get discouraged too. And uh, they feel they, you know, oh my God, that kid's never going to do it. But you know, the, the, there's two choices. One is just to keep trying and the other is to give up. I was like, well, I'll just keep trying. Why not? Mm -hmm. so, the other choice leads to a dead end. So um, well, that's what happened with that group. <laughs> so how did you, how did you balance the consequences with continuing to let them know you trust them? That, and, that, and being kind. And being kind. Right? That's that's the fine line we're always worrying about. Like I, I do trust my daughter overall. I really do. She's fantastic. Like especially if I watch her from afar interact with other kids. It's just, it's amazing how giving and kind and it stands up for herself, like everything you'd hope for in a child. But when it comes to like the parent, you're saying, all right, I trust you and I trust it's going to, do you just let them work it out? Like, obviously if there's some sort of consequences or the consequences are, uh, I'm not supposed to be helicopter parent. You are not supposed to jump off that couch. It's way too high. You're going to hit the floor on your head. Like, where, where is that line? So the line, whenever they're doing things which could hurt them physically, you can't run out in the front of the cars in the street. You know, you, you can't swim. You can't jump in the pool, right? There's, there's certain things that are, you know, if you're going to hurt yourself, that's a different thing. Um, but what I hear what you're saying, you know, they jump on the couch. They're not going to hurt anybody, really. They're just going to ruin the couch. And, um, and they're, they're kind of, it's bad. So a lot of my punishment, it sounds crazy. Their punishment was they had to stay after school with me. And, um, and during that time, I built a relationship with those kids. 
And they also had to write about whatever it was that they had done that wasn't what they should have done. When you have to write about something, you have to think about it. So what I eventually ended up doing is building a sense of community in that class. Mm -hmm. When you're a parent, you want to have also this sense of this is our family. This is a sense of community. We are working together. And, you know, when you're unhappy, I'm unhappy. Well, you know, and your dad's unhappy, your mom's unhappy, your breath. You know, we all want to work together. It's just like nobody really, that's why we want all everybody in, in America to be doing better because no one likes to look next door and see your neighbor suffer. Mm-hmm. We all are a community, but as a family, you know, you, you want them to feel this sense of family. And I think a lot of kids don't. So, and, and let me ask you this then as it relates specifically to Susan and to Anne. Now, a lot of people don't realize this, but, but Susan wasn't just brought in as a hired gun, right? I mean, just briefly, the story with her and, and YouTube actually goes back uh, much further than I think a lot of people realize. Can, can you just take us back through the first time you actually heard about this idea and, and what was going on and her interest in potentially doing something here? You mean with YouTube? With YouTube, Google? yeah. With YouTube, with YouTube specifically. Well, YouTube specifically. So Susan, Susan worked at Google. Yeah. She was their first um, advertising manager. She, her goal, her role and goal was to come up with a way for Google to make some money. Because Larry and Sergey, all they needed seemed to know how to do was to find information. Mm-hmm. And the question was like, okay, so now we found it. Now what? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was Susan's uh, initial role there. I think she had some others, PR roles. You know, when a company's small, you do everything. Sure. And um, and then I think it was 2006, 2005, she had started something called um, YouTube Video. No, it wasn't YouTube. It was called Google Video. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she had Google Video. And then I think one day she was happened to run across this thing called YouTube. And um, she realized after looking it over and exploring that it was much better than her Google video. And she had already spent a lot of time on that and a lot of money. And the question was like, now what am I supposed to do? Now I found something that's even better. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I have to give her a lot of credit because she had to say to her colleagues, you know, we need to scrap what I've done and we need to buy this new company. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's exactly what she did. She recommended to the, the group then was Larry and Sergey and the rest of the group. That was her recommendation. And mm-hmm. fortunately they took that recommendation. Yeah. So, and, and so, go ahead. I'm sorry. One thing I was going to say is that, she had the courage to stand up and admit that she made a mistake. Yeah, exactly. And it, it goes back to so many of the principles and, and uh, the characteristics, if you will, in terms of how you raised her to be resilient and ultimately to be successful. But it's, it's interesting, right, going, going way back, and that's why I just want to kind of bring this up here because a lot of people don't realize 
I mean, for all intents and purposes, one could argue that she created AdWords, what's known as AdWords today, or at least was involved in, in those initiatives. She was, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, so it's not like she just kind of, you know, lucked into this thing as far as YouTube goes and whatnot. I mean, she, she had a, a long-storied career already at Google, and hopefully, and, and I know there's always talk about women in tech and so on, and, and just, and we... We'll save that for another day. But I, I assume that she was able uh, early on as one of the, because I believe if I remember correctly, I read somewhere she was one of the first, was one of the first 50 employees. What? Yeah, I think she was number 16. Yeah, I yeah, I knew it was a very, very small number. So hopefully she was able to work out uh, some sort of equity and compensation plan and has probably done very, very well on that. Um, so, so to that end, I know you've been quoted as saying that, you know, really material wealth doesn't lead to happiness and it doesn't create that happiness, but you know, it's certainly, I think, what do we say, Richie, it can rent it right for, uh, for, for a good period of time. So she's done super well on, on that Google investment, obviously moving into, to YouTube, do, you know, doing really well. There and, and she's capable, and she's you know an an amazing woman, and she deserves everything that she's that she's earned. But how coming from the the family of immigrants, where you you had very little growing up, and you know even as a, as a professor and some of the early work that you did, I mean you did okay, but it didn't move into that world of of true wealth in your in your family unit. I don't think anyway until your the, the, the next generation, meaning your children, started doing what they are doing in that whole world of Silicon Valley. So how how have things changed for you personally in terms of how you think about wealth and happiness and 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 maintaining sort of the integrity of what it is that you preach with so much wealth at your immediate disposal, so to speak. Well, I think one thing that's nice for me, having grown up really poor, is that now I really don't have to worry about like where the next meal's coming from and whether I have a roof over my head and, and if I can actually buy my clothes. I mean, I used to make my clothes because that was if you make your clothes, it's like so much cheaper. It's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I realized, I guess, by watching other people and observing that um, if you have everything in life and if you if the main thing that you want in life is just to own a lot of things, a lot of possessions, you are not really going to be that happy. What makes people happy is the quality of their relationships. And you can have really good relationships without being a billionaire. In fact, being a billionaire seems to have a negative inverse relationship with being happy mm-hmm. uh, at least that's what i have observed mm-hmm. uh, because people place a lot of i guess they, they think that being wealthy is going to make them happy and so they're placing a lot of trust in owning a fancy car or a boat or whatever and in fact what that does it maybe makes your life a little easier physically but if you don't have those relationships, you are not going to be happy. Mm-hmm. So that's what I realized, and that's what I emphasize still with my, with my family. And we don't live extravagant lives. 
I was going to ask, because it, it kind of fits right here, in your title, I'd imagine most people assume that successful means the money, but what do you actually define as successful? I define as successful somebody who believes in themselves enough that they can achieve their dreams and that has the support of a family or community or friends that also support them in achieving whatever it is they want to do. So success can be like hitchhiking through Latin America, you know, and having friends to do that with. And it can be, you know, if you want, if your definition of success is to have like, you know, a 10,000, 20,000 square foot house, and that's what you really like, and you can have, you can achieve that dream and have support, well, then, you know, that makes success for you. I just realized that, you know, that I, I, my number one preference is really relationships and making a difference in other people's lives. And um, I, so that's why, and that's what my daughters are focused on also. Mm -hmm. So it, yeah, and, and let me ask you this then, as it, as it relates to, to Anne then specifically, as far as starting up what has become a, a, a very successful business, how, from from a parental perspective, how do you encourage your 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 child to to take that sort of of risk, right? Because you know you, you put a lot on the line, and both in terms of your personal reputation and in terms of you know what you have to give up, and and it honestly seems to to fly a little bit in the face of what your core teachings are around the power of relationships and focusing on your most important relationships, right? Because to create a company like 23andMe and even to be the CEO of, of, of YouTube, it, it requires a tremendous, I mean, it's a tremendous amount of time. It's a tremendous pull on your energetic resources, right? So, so how do you balance the two in terms of saying, you know, I want you to shoot for bringing this to fruition and create something of, you know, extraordinary magnitude, but at the same time, knowing that if they do this, that it's going to be an incredible drain on on them emotionally and certainly from a time perspective uh, and so on. How, how do you reconcile the two as a parent? Well, first of all, you support them as a parent. But also the other thing you need to remember, the number one thing that happens when people try to achieve these things like their dreams and when they fail or when they have problems, the number one person they have to forgive is themselves. And most people don't forgive themselves. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of anger, built-in anger. And so with Anne and developing 23andMe, I mean, it was a battle. Yeah. I mean, she had conceptualized something that nobody else had conceptualized. And whenever you're doing something that's new and different, it's never easy. And there's another thing Thing that you need that I, I teach them and that they always remember June, especially Susan, she always comes home for dinner with her kids, mm. no matter what. And she prioritizes her family. So she works really hard during the day, but at seven o'clock at night or six o'clock or whatever time, she's there for her kids. 
and she does the same thing on the weekends. So you, I mean, some people think that you have to work, you know, 24 seven, and but you have to take care of yourself and you have to take care of the people that are close to you. And you cannot just keep running on empty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's one thing that um, is important to realize. And all three of my daughters do that. They all prioritize time with the family. Yeah. And one last question here, and then I'll turn it over to, to Richie again. But what, you know, I mean, as if we're, if we're kind of drawing up here the, the poster child for a great mom and, you know, someone who really seems to, to have it together and, uh, you know, you've, you've done amazing things, as I said, in your own right and you've, and you've raised these very successful children, what, what's your biggest regret as you look back now as, as a parent? What, 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 what do you wish you could just go back to that moment of time and just kind of pull it back, whether it was a, a word or an action or, or something as it relates to, to any of your kids, whether it's, it's Susan or, or Janet or, or Anne, any, anything that you most regret and wish you could go back in time and change? Well, the, yeah, you know, there's always something with everybody. You know, there's always little things that happen that, oh, I'm sorry that I said this, or, you know, people get mad and then they say things that they don't mean. But I think if I just think in terms of what I would like to change, if I could go back in time, when Anne was born, um, she was born in July and six weeks after she was born, we moved to Geneva, Switzerland for a year. And so she was actually five weeks old, I believe. And so it was really tough, tough on Janet and tough on Susan, because not only did they have another sibling to deal with, they had a new country, a new language, new food, and a new house. And that was just too much. And so I was just, I overdid it. And um, I mean, we, we managed to do okay, you know, but it was, it was not easy. And um, so if I had to do something over again, I would remember that, you know, when you have a new child in the family or you move to a new house, that's a lot of change. And you have to respect those kids and their needs and not just think about yourself as an adult. Mm-hmm. So that's the big thing that would have changed. Yeah. And, and, and interestingly, I mean, it, it's probably created a, a, a fairly strong sense of resilience and accomplishment in the older girls, right? From the standpoint of if you can do this and if you can overcome this, you know, what, what can't you do? I mean, we moved our kids from Chicago to San Diego at some would say some pivotal, you know, years, at, you know, in, in one was in still grade school, K to five, and then one was in junior high, right? When we moved them. So, but they've learned that they can adapt and evolve and conquer and life doesn't end simply because you have dramatic changes. It just creates new beginnings. That's right. No, so they did. So they profited in some way. Um, but then, of course, that was difficult in other ways. Yeah. Uh, um, so just to make it easier on me as a parent and easier on them as kids, I would just say postpone your move. <laughs> Don't do it the first year. Mm-hmm. When you're a five-week-old baby. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, let's do this because we're gonna we're gonna wrap here, and uh, we'll we'll let you jump, and uh, then Richie and I'll talk for a minute or so. But uh, Esther Wojcicki, hanging out with you has been uh, really an honor and uh, and a privilege, and uh, we we would not be against 
uh, perhaps bringing Susan uh, and on on to our other show, which is the uh, the Beyond Eight Figures podcast. So we'd uh, we would be more than delighted to have them join us there. And of course, uh, it's been an honor and a privilege having you here on Reinvention Radio. Definitely go grab uh, Esther's book, How to Raise Successful People. Simple Lessons for Radical Results. And anything else that uh, you would encourage people to do or last thoughts here? Well, just one last thought. And that is this philosophy I have, trick philosophy, not only works in parenting and in the classroom, it works in the workplace, in the corporate world, because people are happy in their jobs and they feel rewarded when other people respect them and appreciate what they've done and when they trust them. And I think most people who just can hardly wait to get out of there are people who feel that they're working in a toxic environment. And the toxic part is no trust and no respect. So I think this works for relationships, interpersonal relationships, and actually every part of life. Yeah, for sure. And so best uh, best website for folks to go to if they wanna connect with you or, or learn more information, et cetera? Um, I have one. It's a new one that I'm working on. It's called raisesuccessfulpeople.com. There you go. The Wodge Way. The Wodge Way. <laughs> W-O-J. Yep. The Wodge yeah. Way. Awesome. So raisesuccessfulpeople.com. And again, Esther Wojcicki, really appreciate you hanging out with us here on Reinvention Radio. And uh, we'll let you know when this one's ready so you can share it with uh, with all of your awesome people as well. That would be great. All right, we'll let you go. Thank you so much. Good to see you. And uh, and we'll talk to you, Esther, really, really soon. Take care. And uh, and Richie, you know, man, it's um, you, you live and you learn as a parent. And, uh, and that's, that's that's really all you can do, right, is, you know, move forward. And a lot of great tips here. And certainly the uh, the, the trick structure, uh, I know, will help me immensely. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready to apply it when I head home today. I know, right? Yeah, I've got uh, Isaiah here, and hopefully he's taking a listen here, and uh, and he'll want to do some things as far as collaborating on uh, on ways to make our hosts better and create more of um, a communal type of relationship, which I know I'm I'm guilty of as far as just always, you know, being on that computer and and not putting down the computer and turning off the TV. So a lot of great lessons learned here on reinvention radio and uh geez you know she obviously did something pretty darn impressive there with uh, the ceo of youtube founder of 23andme doctor of anthropology man set that bar pretty darn high all right my friends we'll take talk to you really soon take care everybody you just got dismantled thanks for listening to reinvention radio for more information about the show and your host steve olsher visit reinventionradio.com Attention coaches, authors, speakers, and business owners. Please pay close attention to what I'm about to say if you want to secure massive visibility fast and generate thousands of highly qualified leads without spending a dime on advertising or marketing. The easiest way to make this happen is to appear as a guest on the world's most popular podcast. We recently came across an awesome resource that provides detailed contact information for 240 new media influencers who are looking for guests just like you. It's called The Ultimate Directory, and for a limited time, 
online, you can get the preview edition of the directory absolutely free. That's right, for free. It's time for you to get the visibility you and your business deserve and connect with the world's leading icons of influence who can make you famous with the push of a button. Get your free preview edition of the Ultimate Directory right now at www.myultimatedirectory.com. That's myultimatedirectory.com.